Al Pacino was nominated for an Academy Award for his acting in 1979's And Justice For All, the movie, not the Metallica album for anyone out there. In a climactic scene, if you've seen the movie, Pacino's character, a defense attorney, becomes indignant at the injustice of the system and starts ranting the now famous lines, you're out of order, you're out of order, the whole trial is out of order, they're out of order, it's just a show. And as he's being forcibly removed from the courtroom, he shouts, I've just completed my opening statement. The performance was powerful, but not enough to nab out the Oscar. It went to Dustin Hoffman for Kramer versus Kramer that year. Not to worry, Pacino is back in the courtroom in a role that would ultimately win him the Academy Award in 1992's Scent of a Woman. You may remember the famous scene where Pacino, defending his client, becomes indignant at the injustice of the system and starts ranting the now famous lines, what a sham, what kind of a show you're putting on today, I'll show you out of order, you don't know what out of order is. So apparently second time's the charm. If at first you don't win an Academy Award for a role, do the same role 20 years later, they're going to toss it your way as long as Dustin Hoffman isn't going against you. In our text, we'll see a wild courtroom scene. Paul doesn't even finish his opening statement before the trial collapses into bedlam and mayhem. Unlike Pacino, the apostle doesn't become unhinged or enraged, though he does have to be removed, but for his own safety. Now, Paul before the Jewish Sanhedrin is a big deal. The Sanhedrin is the ruling elite, 71 guys who rule over the, you know, the religious aspects of Israel. Uh, they were the experts in religion, the experts in the law, the high court of the nation. Other apostles had stood in front of them, of course, in earlier chapters, we saw those. But this was the first time that Paul would testify before them. He probably knew some of these fellows personally. It had been quite a few years since he had uh, lived his life as a Pharisee in Jerusalem, but I'm guessing he knew some of these guys, or at least used to know them. Though this was the crowd he ran with before his conversion, this would be the first time he was in their presence since he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. And now here he is before this ruling body, the highest court, the supreme court, the experts and authorities, and really, if we think about it, who among them wouldn't be struck by the profound transformation in Paul's life? They knew who Paul was. They knew what had happened to him. Who wouldn't be confounded by the power of his logic in expounding their scriptures and the undeniable proofs he would present that Jesus was, in fact, their long-awaited Messiah? What more perfect moment could possibly be set up? Now, Paul wasn't naive, but what anticipation he must have had that this might be the moment where everything changed for the entire nation. All of the times that the Sanhedrin rejected the call to the gospel, rejected their Messiah, and yet God was putting him in front of them one more time. Man, he must have been full of anticipation. Did you know, I didn't know this, but did you know that Billy Graham went to North Korea and preached there? It's an astonishing thing when we think about it. It's an atheist country. It's a communist country. They don't like folks from this side of the ocean. Uh, but he preached in North Korea in 1992. The world's foremost evangelist, Mr. Graham, brought the message of the gospel to Pyongyang, speaking at Kim Il-sung University, and he had a personal meeting with Kim Il-sung, the father of Kim Jong-il. Yeah, it was North Korea's dictator at the time. What a scene that must have been. And yet... 
from what we measure, no revival, no Nineveh moment, right? Where at the preaching, everyone in the government and down realizes, oh man, we're gonna be judged by God and they rent their clothes and they seek repentance. No domestic uh, dramatic conversion. In fact, Kim Il-sung died the next month and by 1994, the US was seriously considering war against the nation. Sometimes the best man for the job does his job and still nothing really changes, at least not from our perspective. We're gonna see that play out in our verses tonight. Paul does not break through the hard hearts of the Sanhedrin. In fact, their response to just a few of his words is violence and rage. As we've seen before, some commentators are absolutely bent on criticizing Paul throughout this whole section of his life. In fact, since he made the decision to go to Jerusalem, there is a sort of a group of commentators or a persuasion of commentators who say Paul's way outside the will of God. He's completely in disobedience. All of these things that are happening are his own fault and you know, God has to get, them out, get him out of this mess. They look at what happens and decide that Paul, uh, in this case, uh, is just completely out of where he should be. He's responding in anger. He's acting as, this is an actual quote from a commentator we really love. He says he was a shrewd psychologist in this, uh, in this scene who enjoyed watching the Jewish rulers squabble. I don't wanna face Paul in heaven after saying that about him, but... I will say this, all jokes aside, one commentator in our text disagrees with that assessment, and it's Jesus Christ. Listen, at the end of our verses, the Lord Jesus is going to appear to Paul, and rather than rebuke him, he endorses his choices. What happened when Jesus appeared to Peter and said, rise, Peter, kill and eat? And Peter said, I'm not going to do that. Jesus rebuked him. He says, hey, you don't get to call unclean what I've made clean, right? Uh, the Lord is not shy about rebuking his people or chastening them. What happened when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit? Because the Lord loved them, he disciplined them. And so we have no reason biblically to think in this section that Jesus just didn't think Paul could handle a scolding if he deserved it. Uh, not at all. Now, why this doesn't settle the debate over the issue, I don't know. But rather than seeing Paul as some unhinged Pacino in the scene, a better lesson <laughs> is the helpful reminder that man-made systems ultimately are not going to do the right thing. They may be full of people with good intentions. They may be full of people who have some level of integrity. But if we are talking about a man-made system, in the end, they're not going to go God's way. Why is that? Well, Paul explained to the Ephesians that before you become a Christian, even if you have good intentions, even if you were brought up the right way, whatever that means, even if you have higher ideals than other people around you, you still are going to carry out the inclinations of your flesh. He says, look, before you're a Christian, you are far from God. And therefore you're far from his ways, far from his perspective, far from his ideals. And the only way we're brought near to God, Paul says, is by the blood of Christ. And so what we really see in this scene, I don't think is focused on Paul at all, is more focused on the complete deterioration and collapse of the pinnacle system of mankind, right? As far as you know, philosophy and Judaism and all that is concerned, these are the guys 
who dedicate their life to doing the right thing. That's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be experts, not just experts on some you know, random topic somewhere, but experts on the revealed word of God, experts on deity, experts on how a society should be governed, how it should be ruled, how people should live in such a way to do what's right and not do what's wrong. And what we're gonna see is a complete collapse and breakdown. We're gonna see, not that Paul caused it, but that through his testimony, he reveals what is actually happening between these people and in this system. And so man-made systems ultimately are not gonna do the right thing. Sometimes men's hearts are so hard that it is hopeless to think that we can rehabilitate the structures they have built up, which is why, as Christians, our function is to be witnesses, not architects of a human utopia. On display here is the reality that the methods of the Sanhedrin were too far gone to be salvaged, but individual members of the Sanhedrin, of course, were not too far gone to be saved. I'm sure there were lots of guys like Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea, guys who truly were seeking out the Lord. Some of these guys were not. We'll meet some of them tonight. But it's not that the members individually were too far gone, but this system is completely wasted. It was Paul's hope to save individuals, and that should be our hope too. J. Vernon McGee has a timely quote for us when he commented on this section of scripture. He said, in our day, there are a great many people who feel that if we change our form of government, or at least if we change our party from one that is in power, whichever it may be, this will give us a solution to all our problems. It has never solved our problems in the past. We wonder why the system won't work. We think we need to change the system. Do you know what we need? We need to change men's hearts. It is man that needs changing, not the system. Why? Because you can make a law telling someone not to steal, and then that law gets broken every day by all sorts of, peop all sorts of people all over the place. Or you can take a man and have his heart transformed by the power of the gospel, and he who was a thief no longer is a thief. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians, such were some of you, and now they weren't those things anymore. So let's begin, see how this plays out, starting in verse one. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. This opening statement is bold. It sounds like it's coming from a man who's completely unafraid, completely unintimidated, and yet we'll see that Jesus, when he appears to Paul in just a little bit, feels the need to come and encourage him and say, hey, take courage, Paul, don't be afraid. Well, apparently Paul was afraid and discouraged. So how does this add up? How can a, a bold declaration come out of a man like this? I believe it shows us that the Lord was making good on his promise when he said in Luke 12, whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Paul's in that exact situation and the Lord was not gonna leave him hanging. And so this is one of my big quibbles with um, those commentators who suggest Paul's just flying by the seat of his pants and he's saying stuff in anger and he's sinning before the Lord. Well, that would sort of require that God goes back on that promise from Luke 12 where he specifically said, don't even worry about what you're gonna say when for persecution's sake, you are brought before a tribunal like this. I guess, you know, they're thinking that Jesus said, hey, I'm gonna tell you what to say. He said, Paul said, no, nah, forget that. I got a few things I wanna say to these people. It's weird. Now, 
Let's look at what Paul said. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. How could Paul honestly make that claim? Well, notice he didn't say that he had lived his life in perfection. He speaks of a clean conscience. What is conscience? Warren Wearsby says this, conscience is the inner judge or witness that approves when we do right and disapproves when we do wrong. Conscience does not set the standard, it only applies the standard. The standard then, what is it? If conscience doesn't set the standard, thank God it does it, because in human systems and in human societies, when God, the God of the Bible is removed and man sets their own standard, the standard is very poor. The standard ends in tens of millions of people being murdered. It ends in all sorts of corruption. It ends in waste and war and destruction and those sorts of things. So what is the standard? Well, of course, the standard for Christians is God's word, which has been given to us, we're told, to guide us, instruct us, us, and measure us. And in God's word, we are commanded to keep faith and have a clean conscience. So on the one hand, we read what Paul says here and we say, wow, how can he say that? And we page through a little bit and the Bible says, and you need to do the same thing too. You keep a clean conscience before God. What does that mean? Well, it means we need to learn and apply the biblical standard to our thoughts, choices, and behavior. We need to calibrate our conscience according to what God has revealed in special revelation, the word, the scriptures. Of course, that doesn't mean we are going to be perfect. If we say we have no sin, you're a liar, right? But God does give us the power to overcome sin in every situation. There's no temptation that's too great for us to overcome because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so God gives us this standard, his word to guide us, instruct us, to measure us, to give us something to calibrate our lives and our consciences in so that we can fulfill that command he's given us to keep a good, clean conscience before the Lord. Now, we recognize that the Bible is authoritative and it is authoritative for life and godliness. What does that mean? Sometimes you'll hear that, well, the Bible's authoritative. That that means the Bible, God's word, gets to tell you what to do, what to think, how to act, how to be. That's the deal. The Bible is the authority. And it is an authority, not because the Lord just wants to put us under his thumb because he wants to make sure that we're all good little ants in our ant farm. That's not it at all. God is a God of everlasting love, right? I mean, God loves us more than any of us can fathom. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us first. And so what's with this biblical authority? Well, the Bible is authoritative and given to us for life and for godliness. It says so that we might be complete. God says, hey, you know what? You are never able to live up to your potential as a human being unless you go my way. Your marriage cannot live up to God's desire for you unless you go God's way. Your parenting cannot live up to God's desire for you unless you go his way. Your individual life, your career, all of these things will always be lower than what God wants for you if we don't make him and his word the authority for how we live, how we act, how we think. And these are important truths to keep close to our hearts in times like we find ourselves in when the world around us is calling good evil and evil good. All the more, we need to make sure we are calibrating our hearts, the thoughts of our hearts, our consciences, our mindset, according to the word of God, not according to culture, not according to popularity, celebrity, anything like that. But what does God, what has God said preserved and delivered to me so that I 
can be made complete and full of faith because of his work. Verse two, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. There were at least three things that would have made a man like Ananias angry. This is a different Ananias. We've met like a billion Ananiases so far in Acts. This is a different one. He's a new guy. He's not our kind of guy. But why was he upset? Well, first of all, when Paul called them brethren, he was effectively making himself appear with them. If you were for some, our system isn't organized this way, but let's say you were going to be personally put on trial in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. Buddies, I've got a few things to say to you. That's probably not the best way to start, right? Because you're making yourself peers with them. And, but that is exactly what Paul was doing. He made himself a peer of these supposedly great men. They were great in their own eyes for sure. Second, Paul suggested that not only was he innocent and shouldn't even be in this courtroom, but that he was just before God. They didn't like that either. Third, he spoke before being spoken to. And scoundrels like Ananias don't like any of that kind of behavior. And so he illegally had Paul struck. Ananias may have held the office of the high priest at the time, but don't consider him to be any kind of Aaron or any, anything like that. Uh, he was by no means a godly man. Historians record him as being a thieving glutton. He was tried for cruelty at one point, not by the rest of the Sanhedrin, but in Rome. They said, dude, we hear the kinds of things you're doing. You, you got to come to Rome. We're going to put you on trial. And uh, that's a problem. It's also recorded that he would send his thugs to go and steal food from some of the temple priests in Jerusalem beating anyone who stood in their way. And they did it so much that Josephus records it led to the starvation of some of the priests in the temple. He just kept taking their food, taking their food, taking their food, while the priests, he's the high priest, and the priests under him were literally starving to death because of it. So that's the chief justice of this court right here. We can also notice that as a body, the Sanhedrin has been progressing in the refusal to hear the message of grace. Let's think about it. We've seen them a few times before. It's been quite a few chapters, but back in chapter four, what happened? They were, we had apostles before the Sanhedrin. In that situation, the Sanhedrin had listened. They didn't receive the gospel, but they listened and they threatened the apostles and let them go. Okay. And then in Acts five, we see another time before the Sanhedrin. This time they listened, but they put the apostles in jail and then they flogged them as well. Okay, so they took another step. In Acts chapter six and seven, what happened? The Sanhedrin listened to Stephen, but then murdered him. We're going down a bad path here. And now we see them once again in Acts 23 and no longer will they listen. They don't care what Paul has to say. They don't wanna hear it. As soon as he speaks, hit that guy. Uh, so we see this, this devolution uh, into a refusal to listen, a hardening of their hearts. After so many attempts made by God to show them grace and to offer them forgiveness and to preach the message of, of salvation, they had come to this end. They are effectively, as a group, set in stone now. And you know, we're not gonna see them, the group, anymore after this, other than that a small delegation goes to Caesarea to accuse Paul. But this is it. This is the last time before the Sanhedrin. And of course, if as students of history, we know that the next stop for them was AD 70, the complete destruction of the temple, the complete destruction of the nation, the scattering of everyone else. 
There comes a point in the lives of people and of nations where they cement their hearts so much against the gospel that they will not hear it anymore. Now, we can't predict when that point is, right? But it happens. And while God strives with men day after day, he does call out to them in both testaments saying, when you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. He sends out this warning, this plea, please don't do this. The more that a person or a nation hardens themselves against the gospel, the less and less apt they are become to receive the gospel. These men had hardened their hearts again and again and again and again, and they did so to their own ruin. Verse three, Paul said to them, God's gonna strike you, you whitewashed wall. You're sitting there judging me according to the law, yet in violation of the law, you are ordering me to be struck. Now, a lot of commentators accuse Paul here of wrongdoing. He pachinos out for a minute, freaks out, right? They say he snapped. They say that his temper flared. They say he lost his composure and that his flesh prevailed. However, David Guzik rightly points out that we have no idea the tone of Paul's statement, do we? We don't know. When is the last time that your tone was misunderstood in a text message, right? So we assume, when, if we're reading this casually, I think there's an assumption now, oh, Paul was harsh. He must have yelled at him. He was mad. He probably, you know, let a little spittle fly off, you know? <laughs> we don't know. He might have said it completely calmly. He might have said it with a smile on his face. We don't know. So instead, let's think about a couple of factors. Number one, think of Paul's track record. Remember how gracious he had been leading up to this moment. How had he treated the mob that was kicking him to death? Really well, with a lot of self-control, with a lot of grace, with a lot of kindness. How had he treated the Romans that were illegally tying him, about to flog him maybe to death? Really well, with a lot of grace, with a lot of kindness, with a lot of calm. And then suddenly it's like, well, then they bring him in here and he freaks out. He's been, he's been storing it all up and now he's mad. He can't take it anymore. I don't think so. Also, as I've already pointed out, Jesus will not rebuke him for this statement. And we remember the promise that the Holy Spirit would speak through God's servants in exactly this situation. We have no reason to think that this utterance wasn't from the Holy Spirit. And in fact, on top of all of that, thanks to the vantage point of history, we know that this statement was not just from the Holy Spirit. It was a prophetic utterance from the Holy Spirit. Paul was prophesying here because what he said happened. A few short years after this scene, Ananias would be brutally assassinated after his mansion was burned down because of his tide to the Romans. And so what Paul said was absolutely true. I, so I suppose it's possible that Paul lost his temper, but nothing he said here was wrong or unfair. So even if he was angry, I think he fulfills that verse that says, be angry and do not sin. He didn't say anything wrong. He didn't say anything unfair. In fact, he, in fact, he said something that was prophetically true. Verse four, those standing by said, do you dare revile God's high priest? They're swooning. Ah, you know, they can't take it. It's amazing how broken man-made systems can become. Suddenly, these guys are worried about godliness. Suddenly, they're worried about honor. Suddenly, they're worried about conduct. Or you're not to say things like that in these hallowed halls. You're literally breaking the law right now. This, that man just broke the law to have me struck and you're worried that, oh, we have to make sure everything's on the up and up here. Meanwhile, Paul's being illegally treated in a trial for which there is no evidence because he had done absolutely nothing wrong. There's no charge against him. And so it's, it's sad to see how dysfunctional this supreme body was, was behaving. Verse five, 
I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. A lot of theories about this verse. How do we get ourselves out of this one? Some think Paul was being ironic, even snarky, sarcastic, saying that a man like that couldn't be high priest. Okay. Others blame Paul's bad eyesight. Certainly he had poor eyesight. Others note that the high priest changed so frequently in those days, it actually was hard to know who had the title. In fact, sometimes they had three in one year. They were just being like over and because it was the Romans and Herod and these other people were appointing the high priest. You're a high priest, now you're deposed. Now you're a high priest, now you're deposed. So, I mean, they're changing all the time. And Paul's been gone for a long time. And also, the high priest would not be wearing his official priestly garments in this scene as prescribed in Ezekiel 44, 19, where it says, hey, once you leave this courtyard, the priests take off their priestly garments and they wear ordinary clothes. So some think Paul was finally getting control after his Pacino rage and he was walking back his angry outburst. But he doesn't apologize. So I suppose it's gonna remain a mystery. We don't exactly know uh, on this side of heaven but two points present themselves here. First, in reality, this man was absolutely not God's high priest. He just wasn't. He was a guy sitting in a chair, but he was not God's high priest. For one thing, he had disqualified himself through his ongoing life of gross sin. For another, it was Herod that appointed him to the office. It wasn't the people of Israel and the chain of you know, heredity, the being the son of Aaron and all of those sorts of things. But most importantly, Jesus Christ was now and is forever God's high priest. What happened at the crucifixion? The veil was torn. Jesus said it was finished. Not only was it finished, our sins were dealt with, but the system of the Mosaic law was finished. It was done. And many New Testament epistles explain that to us. Hey, this is done. Hey, you Hebrew Christians, don't go back to Hebrewism. Hey, you Galatians, don't fall into legalism. That's all done. So there was no high priest on earth anymore. Jesus Christ was the high priest because having died, rose again, and ascended, he now functions as God's great high priest who has entered heaven and rules over God's house, the book of Hebrews says. But a second point we might find here is this. What Paul said still holds as a standard for us. We talked about conscience. We talked about God's revealed word being that which we calibrate our lives by we got to turn the screws in a painful way right here, okay? Because this is a standard for us, according to Paul the Apostle, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Man, that's a tough one, isn't it? It just is. Uh, let me make it a little bit worse for us. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 10, 20a, do not curse the king even in your thoughts. Uh, we're, we're not good at this. Let's be honest. Let's be real. There's certain things that, you know, the evangelical American church like Calvary Hanford is good at and some things we're not good at. And we need to repent and own it and say, hey, this is a standard. This is a standard God has given us. These are commands given to us by our king. We are to honor authority, submit to it, and respect the offices. We do not have to agree with godless men. We do not have to agree with unjust behavior. We don't have to wink at it, but our Lord sets this as the standard. So let's not be like the Sanhedrin and instead calibrate our consciences according to the word of God, 
painful and unpleasant, but this is what God has told us to do. And so God help us do it. Verse six, when Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Here, some commentators once again accuse Paul of less than Christian behavior. They say he was manipulating them, trying to get himself out of a self-inflicted jam. I don't see it that way. For one thing, it's true that the trouble with the Jews came from his preaching that Jesus was res resurrected. But we can observe that Paul frequently had what we might call an exit strategy. I don't mean that in a negative sense at all. It was clear that the door was shut. There's no more preaching happening that day. I mean, from, from right from the moment, it was like, oh, if we ever saw a closed door, this is one of them. No one was gonna listen. So since there was no preaching left to do that day, Paul brought the scene to an end. It reminds me of when he said, are you allowed to scourge a Roman citizen? Let's bring this to an end right now. He had a little bit of an exit strategy there. In Philippi, when they said, okay, get out of town, he said, oh, are you allowed to do that to Roman citizens? He had an exit strategy for how he was gonna leave the city of Philippi. Later, when they're going through all these phony trials again, he's gonna say, okay, that's enough. I appeal to Caesar. Right? So Paul, we see, was mindful and thoughtful and prudent in the way he carried himself. Don't move on before noticing that a third time he calls them brothers. Paul really loved his fellow Jews, even those who were being awful to him. He truly loved them and wanted them to be saved. Verse 7, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. The Sadducees denied the supernatural. They believed there was no heaven, no hell. They didn't even think humans had a spirit. They thought you had a soul, but it died with your body. Great religion. They believed there was a God, but that he didn't care what you did, as there were no punishments or rewards after death. It begs the question, what point is there having a high priest like that who doesn't believe in anything? What's the point? He's going in and offering sacrifices to a God who he says he's not even watching. He doesn't care about any of this. All of this is a sham. Sheol, yeah, that's not real. Your spirit, yeah, that's not real. None of that's real. Anyway, I'm going to need more food from priests, right? What is the point? Now, listen, let's turn this on ourselves. We are called priests in the New Testament. Our doctrines are given to us in the scripture. They're about life and death and mercy and grace and hope and truth, all sorts of things. The question is, do we live what we believe? Or have we been wrapped up in the temporal, material, man-made systems like the Sadducees had? That's what the Sadducees were all about. They were wrapped up in the temporal, wrapped up in the Roman government, wrapped up in materialism. That's what they lived for. That's what filled their minds. That's what they navigated their lives by. We say that we believe that righteousness exalts a nation. We say that we believe that it is the gospel that brings hope and transformation to lives and communities. So the question is then, okay, well then do we live that out? Or like McGee said earlier, do we keep going to human systems hoping that they will solve our problems and fix what's wrong with the world? It's a fair question for all of us to ask ourselves. Now this melee, and it will be a melee between the Pharisees and the Sadducees looks a lot like our country right now. They needed little excuse to break out in violent opposition to one another, and we see a bitter partisan resentment. Now, compare this to what we read back in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. 
They're the church gathered together to settle and bridge a very serious and very strong rift between points of view, a really serious debate, not a small thing at all. And it was done without violence, it was done without hatred, it was done without anarchy, and it was done without expelling half of the people in the room. The church wasn't just two parties like we see here. I mean, in the church, we were talking about zealots and tax collectors, Jews and Samaritans, academics and fishermen, rich and poor. We're talking about every stripe, every kind. And what had God done in the church? He said, I brought down the wall of separation and brought you all together and mingled you up so that you could glorify me and support one another and make something beautiful. That's what God does when he changes hearts. He brings peace and grace to his people and to his church. Verse nine, the shouting grew loud and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party got up and argued vehemently, we find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Okay, it wasn't just the Sadducees who were hypocrites. The Pharisees didn't actually believe this about Paul. Sure, they believed in angels and spirits, but they didn't believe this about Paul. They hated Paul. Listen, even the Christians in the church in Jerusalem who were of the party of the Pharisees didn't like Paul or his teaching, right? That's what the Jerusalem council was all about. And so we see here a complete breakdown of any sort of human integrity. Everything that was happening was happening because of political motivations. Paul now had just become a, a, a political landmine to argue over and, and, or try to avoid or try to use to hurt someone else as far as the Sanhedrin is concerned. As Christians, our motivations are to be relational, not political. That's how Simon the Zealot can live and work with Matthew the tax collector. You see, before Christ, if Simon the Zealot meets Matthew the tax collector in a dark alley, he murders him. That's what the Zealots did. And then Jesus says, you two, right here, here we go. You're buddies now. You're gonna do the Lord's work now. And they said, yeah, that's right. Because Jesus Christ took down that wall of separation between them and made them brothers, made them family in the household of God. Now, I always try to point out, this doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't be involved in the political process or that we should never be involved in governmental affairs. But when we see examples of that in the Bible, people like Daniel, Nehemiah, other folks like that, what was their purpose? What was their mindset? To influence policy or to manifest their faith day by day? Was there a purpose to restructure their government or to glorify God and further his purposes come what may? That, that's what was going on. Verse 10 says, when the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them and bring them, him into the barracks. So once again, we see that these people are ready to explode into violence at the drop of a hat. Feels a lot like today and that is not a good thing. Violence is not the answer for Christians. Proverbs 3 says, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. Now, the Bible makes a difference between vengeance and defense, between attacking and rescuing. We are told in the Bible to defend our families. We're told to deliver the helpless from the grasp of evil people. But violence as retribution or revenge is outside the boundaries for Christians, and it is not a tool used to accomplish God's plan of redemption. Not ever. It just isn't. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it's necessary for you to testify in Rome. Paul must have been so discouraged that night. 
No matter what he had tried to say and do in Jerusalem, none of it had the desired effect, not among the church, not in the temple, not before the Sanhedrin. And yet, Jesus endorses it. He says, way to go. You testified about me. Let's do a little more of this. Do more of this? I say one thing, and then I'm getting kicked to death. But Jesus says, man, just like you testified here, we're going to send you to Rome, have you testify there. How had so few words been a testimony? Well, if we go back just to when he was attacked in the temple a few passages ago and move on from there, we find that Paul had shared these truths. First, that Jesus was resurrected and alive. Second, that God does involve himself in the affairs of men. Third, that Christ forgives sins. Fourth, that his plan of salvation is for everyone, Jew and Gentile. He actually testified quite a lot. Paul's preaching was a lot more than it looked at first. And as Jesus speaks with him, we see that the Lord's goal for his life was not for him to reform the Sanhedrin. It was to present salvation to people, those people who God brought into his path. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say that as Christians, we don't work on commission, that God says, hey, you didn't bring enough people to me. He says, look, in the end, it's not about if I bring people to Jesus Christ, it's whether I brought Jesus Christ to people. I can't force someone to believe. I can't convince someone inside their heart to do what's right and to receive salvation, but I can present the gospel to them. We don't work on commission. You've been commissioned to go and make disciples, not to create a new world order. Jesus is going to do that. Jesus is the one that's going to bring utopia to earth. It's not our job. It's not our job at all. Our purpose is to testify of Christ and to represent him in the lives we've been given. Now, if you're in a position like Daniel or Joseph or Nehemiah or Esther, then perhaps you are able to make a lasting societal change. But that happens when hearts are transformed, not when laws are passed. You know, there's a law against murder, right? And people go out and murder people every single day, every single day, every single day, every single day, every single day. But you take a murderer like Paul and confront him with Jesus Christ and he gets saved, guess who's not a murderer anymore? That guy. That's, that's what we're talking about. Our hope is in the Lord's plan. Our purpose is to courageously testify for him and represent him. Our power is found in the word. The whole system around us may be out of order, but we can navigate through with peace and joy and grace and calm and confidence that the Lord will continue his amazing work through us day by day, trial by trial, because our hope and our heading is Christ Jesus, not human institutions. He is our savior and our leader and our provider, and he sends us out to go and do likewise.